Thank you so much, Carol. Good morning, church family. We're continuing in our series called Church at a Crossroads. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. Uh, back in 1932, uh, the University of Southern California football team um, introduced uh, a new form of apparel for their players to wear underneath uh, their equipment. Uh, it's what we would now call a t-shirt, but the t-shirt hadn't been invented yet. Uh, and th- think about life without t-shirts. But back in 1932, no one wore t-shirts except these football players underneath their uh, equipment. And uh, after practice, some of them would keep wearing them. Hopefully they washed and showered. I'm not sure. But people started seeing the football players wearing the, this, this unique shirt. And um, eventually, the football players stopped returning them to the equipment manager. And then other students started buying these shirts from the, uh, from the football players. And everyone's walking around wearing these, this, this new fashion trend, these new shirts. And so, the equipment manager at the USC football team says, I know how to solve this. And so, he wrote or he silkscreened on the front of the t-shirt, Property of USC. That's how the property of a t-shirt came to be. I mean, all of us at, at one time or another have had some sort of t-shirt, right? That says, you know, property of, you know, our favorite sports team or our, our gym class or, 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 you know, property of Disneyland, wherever. We all have these kinds of t-shirts, but it all started in 1932 at the University of Southern California. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's concerned about how they've been living. There's there's an incestuous relationship that no one is addressing or talking about. They're taking one another to court, and, and now he wants to talk to them about their sexual ethics, how they are thinking about and acting on the sexual desires uh, that they have. And he wants to remind them that they are property of Jesus Christ. As Carol read in verse 20, it says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong to Jesus, and therefore, how you handle your body and think about your body matters very much. Today's uh, message is titled, Flee Sexual Immorality, which is one of the commands that Paul gives at the end of this passage. That's that's what he's aiming at. He wants the church to, to run away from sexual temptation and to glorify God with their bodies. Corinth was uh, a, a, a travel port. There was a harbor on either side and just a short stretch of land that separated two massive bodies of water. If you wanted to travel anywhere in the Roman Empire, if you were a, a purveyor of goods, if you were a businessman or woman and you wanted your to, to expand your market share, you had to go through Corinth. Everyone went through Corinth, and you would bring your ship to the one harbor, and then either load your cargo onto another ship a few kilometers down the way, or they, would, they actually had these giant skateboards that they would lift up the ships onto and then wheel them. And as your cargo was being transported, you'd stick around in Corinth, and you'd experience really the entertainment district uh, in this era. You would go and hear orators speak, or you would go and, and sample some of the food, or you would go and visit a brothel. That was just part of uh, everyday life in Corinth. Corinth was a culture, just like our culture, that in some ways made way too big of a deal out of sex. It was part of worship. There were temples that actually had prostitutes, and that was part of the temple 
worship. It was something that the people thought they can't live without. It defines who they are. That sounds a lot like our world. We have these sex symbols, or we we have sex education. We talk about being sexually fulfilled. We talk about people's sexual orientation as though it defines who they are. We we make a, just like Corinth, we make a huge deal out of this subject in our culture today. But at the same time, while we make this big deal and we elevate it like it's such an important thing, in Corinth and in our culture, we also treat it like it's a very minor and insignificant thing. Like in, in, in Corinth, as in our day today, we, we talk about it as, as it's just some sort of low, base, instinctual, animalistic desire that dwells inside of us. I mean, we're just mammals, and this is what, this is what mammals do. It's, it's just a biology. We, we, it's just transactional between consenting adults. There's, there's, nothing, there's no big deal about it. And so in Corinthian culture and in our culture, we make a huge deal about sex in one sentence, and then the next sentence, we talk about it like it's nothing at all. And Paul, in wanting to help this church, he's going to try to cut through and challenge some of the cultural preconceptions, the assumptions that people were making about sexuality at the time, and that's going to cut right through our culture as well. And then he's going to correct and clarify some of the misunderstandings that the the, the church at Corinth had, first off about salvation, and then about sexuality, and then he's going to give the command, the command to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God with your bodies. But it's interesting, as you study this passage, uh, the Greek word uh, porneia, or a form of it, appears a number of times in this passage. That's what's translated sexual immorality. And, and porne, the same root word, is found, is, is what's translated as prostitutes in this text as well. The, the essence of what sexual immorality means is to treat sex as if it were a commodity, as if it were transactional, as if it, 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 as if it were something that you could buy or sell, to, to separate it from, from the whole being of the person and to treat it like a commodity. That's what sexual immorality is. And Paul here wants them to flee from that. But the word that gets repeated most in these eight verses is not the word porne or porneia. The word that gets translated the most is, is the word body, the Greek word soma. And what Paul is really trying to emphasize here is he's trying to teach the church at Corinth, he's trying to teach us about the significance of our bodies. Because if, it's only if we have a right understanding of our bodies, theologically speaking, that we will be able to have a right and holy view of God's gift of sexuality. And so Paul wants to share with the church at Corinth, and the Holy Spirit is going to share with us today, uh, three truths about our bodies. Here's here's the first one. As Paul's trying to, to correct some of the misconceptions and assumptions of the culture, Paul wants to teach the church, teach us, that our bodies will be resurrected by God. We will be physically resurrected by God. So Paul begins with the cultural assumptions. Look at verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me. Notice how that's in quotation marks. And then he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Those quotations are telling. They've been added by the translators uh, who who believe that Paul is quoting back to the church at Corinth a common saying that, that was spoken in the streets of Corinth. 
All things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. If it feels good, do it. There's no rules. There's no boundaries. There's no transgression. Just be free. Personal autonomy and self-expression and license is the name of the game. Corinth was a little bit like Las Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. All things are lawful for me. We play by a different set of rules around here. And maybe the church at Corinth kind of latched on to that mentality. They heard Paul write about and talk about and preach about the things that we were singing about this morning, about grace and about forgiveness. And maybe some of the Christians were saying, wow, if we're forgiven and if God is so gracious and so forgiving, then, and if I'm free from the law and free from sin, then all things are lawful for me. But as Paul says in Romans 6, shall we go on sinning? That grace may increase, he says, by no means. When we talk about freedom from sin, we mean freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. That, that's not freedom at all. In fact, that's just another form of slavery. So Paul lays out these contrasts. Let me show you what I mean. So he, he quotes the slogan, all things are lawful, but then he says, but not all things are beneficial. Not all things are good for you. You can put marbles in your mouth. You could probably swallow one. You could do that, but that's, that's not a good thing <laughs> to do with your body. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Because sometimes in the name of freedom, we can give ourselves to something, thinking that it's going to lead to more freedom, but it actually leads to more bondage. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 8. When he said the truth will set you free, he also said that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's John 8, uh, 34. Peter, also warning about false teachers, said they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, whatever dominates a person, to that he is enslaved. We, we can think that we're free to practice our sexuality however we want, but often the free expression of our sexuality or fulfillment of all of our sexual desires actually leads to a form of slavery. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So there were these wrong assumptions, first off, in the culture of Corinth about personal autonomy and freedom. That was part of the cultural ethos in the city of Corinth, and it had woven its way in this twisted, theological, free grace kind of a way into the church where people were thinking that how they behave sexually really has no consequence because they know they're forgiven and all things are lawful. Then he quotes another proverb or another hashtag or another slogan or bumper sticker in Corinth. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is for food. The, the idea is there that your stomach is an, a bodily organ and it has appetites and instincts and desires and we fulfill that with food. And there are other organs on our body that have instincts and desires and impulses and we should gratify those desires the same way that we gratify our stomachs. This is the idea that sex is no big deal. 
that it's like going to the, to the fridge. Just eat whatever you want. Do whatever you want. I read a really troubling quote uh, this week from a bioethicist at Princeton University. So he is help, helping steer our culture in terms of how to behave, how not to behave, guiding doctors, guiding, guiding our, our, our culture in terms of what to do and what not to do. The difference between right and wrong. This is what Peter Singer had to say about sex. He says, sex raises no moral issues at all. Decisions about sex may involve considerations of honesty, concern for others, prudence, and so on. But there's nothing special about sex in this respect. The same could be said of decisions about driving a car. This is Princeton University. (laughs) This is bioethics. This guy has... PhDs and, and, and degrees from some of the, the most world-renowned universities. And this is, this is his morality of sexuality, that it's the same as driving a car. The food is for stomachs. And, and the body and the bodily organs involved in sexuality are just, that's the same appetite and need to be followed. So the church of Corinth was tapping into that idea, the Corinthian idea, the food is for the stomach. And then it's, then, but they, they glazed over it with a, with a theological veneer. Look at what they said. It says, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, most English translations end the quotation marks too early. They think that Paul is contrasting that God will destroy the body and the stomach. But that's a theologically inaccurate statement. God will not destroy the body and the stomach. God will resurrect the body and the stomach, which is why Paul corrects it. At the end of verse 13, in the beginning of verse 14, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. This is the answer. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So there's this contrast. The stomach is for food. But then Paul corrects it by saying, no, The body is for the Lord, not for sexual immorality. And rather than saying God will destroy both, he says, no, God raised the Lord, the Father raised the Son, and will also raise us up. You see the contrast? You see, the the Corinthians had bought into what was a, a Greek philosophical way of thinking that also influenced Roman culture, this idea that the physical, our bodies and the world around us, is is evil and broken and dirty, and that the only thing that is good is our spirit or our soul, our inner self. The, the Greek word for uh, body, as I mentioned, is soma. The Greek word for tomb is sema. Another slogan in, in Roman culture was, my soma is a sema. My body is a tomb. My body doesn't matter. My body is like the brown box our Amazon orders come in. If, if our Amazon box arrives on our porch and there's a little bit of tear on the on the tape of the brown box, or if if there's a little hole that's been punctured in it, or if our kids get to the brown box before we do, and they magic marker all over it. We're not particularly concerned because we're only concerned about what's inside the box. And that's how Roman culture thought about our bodies, that our bodies are just receptacles. They're just containers that hold what really matters, the inner 
self, the soul, the idea that it's only the soul that is immortal and the body will perish. Now, some of you are thinking, don't Christians believe that? No, they don't. We don't believe that, but we're so influenced by Greco-Roman culture and loved ones. We're so influenced by our own culture around us that that's how we think. Now, we live in a strictly materialist world. But it's interesting that even though all of our philosophy and our science and our ethics all centers around materialism, which is the the idea that all that matters is flesh and blood, even though that is the focus, there is still this allegiance to the soul or the inner self. Now, scientists and philosophers might not talk about eternity anymore or going to heaven or anything like that. But we talk a lot about being true to ourselves. We talk a lot about the inner self. In fact, if you were to look at a number of the issues that are challenging the Christian worldview today, issues like sexual immorality, issues like homosexuality, gender dysphoria or transgenderism, issues like abortion, you look at all of these issues and what do they all have in common? They all have in common that what happens to my body must be subservient to my inner self. That I can, that, that it's not like the Greek perspective where the body is evil, it's just that the body is neutral. The body is just like Play-Doh or a Lego character, that I can take the, the bottom off or the top off, or I can add this piece or that piece, or I can mold or sculpt. The body's just this neutral box that I can shape or move, and all that really matters is the inner self. You see, when Paul is cutting through these cultural assumptions, he's cutting right through Corinth. He's coming right, he's coming right to Canada. He's coming right to where we are living right now. This separation and this elevation of the soul and the inner self at the expense of the body. Now, in Corinth, that played out in two ways. It played out like chapter 6 where people are going to prostitutes. My body doesn't matter, so I'm just going to indulge my body. But it's also going to play out in chapter 7, which Pastor Chris is going to talk about next week, where people consider the body so, so impure and, and, and so separate from the soul that even married couples were abstaining from intimacy because they thought that that was below them or beneath them. It cuts both ways. So the, the Apostle Paul is... is trying to open their eyes to see, no, 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 the stomach is not for food only. The body is not for sexual immorality only. The body will not be destroyed by God. God, the Father, resurrected the Son. It's, it's, it's right there in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will raise us up in His power. God loves the material world. He spoke it into existence. He created it, and for six days straight, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. We're not supposed to be separate from our body. In fact, that, that when Christ returns, we're all going to be resurrected with him. Loved ones, you are not going to be floating around as a spirit on a cloud, wisping around. Your real resurrected feet are going to be standing on real ground in the new heavens and the new earth. Your real tongue and your real mouth and breath from your real resurrected lungs are going to sing, Worthy are you, Lord. We will be physically resurrected. 
And that's what Paul is trying to communicate here. He said, don't buy into the cultural assumptions that downplay the importance of the body that doesn't matter what you do with your body. It does matter. Our body, verse 13, is for the Lord. And how we treat our bodies and what we do with our bodies matters. The church at Corinth had lost sight of the bodily resurrection of every follower of Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about. Spoiler alert. They had lost sight of the reality of Jesus' resurrection, which is of first importance, and then our physical resurrection as well. So we got to understand a right theology of our body in order to get a right theology of sexuality. So it starts with the understanding that God loves our body. He created our body. He loves the physical universe, and he will resurrect our body one day. Therefore, our body matters. Don't damage the box. Our bodies will be resurrected by God. Secondly, our bodies are united with Christ. Our bodies are united with Christ. So Paul, he's challenged the assumptions of the culture. Now he's going to address and correct some specific misunderstandings within the church. The first is the understanding of salvation. How much of Jesus actually, or how much of you did Jesus actually save? That's the question. Paul says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That our bodies are connected, that, that we are members of Christ. Our bodies belong to Christ. Our bodies are connected to Christ. Jesus didn't just save our soul so that our soul would one day go to heaven. Jesus saved our body too. Jesus didn't just save how we feel or what we think or what we believe. Jesus saved what we do. He saved all of us. And so here's the truth, loved ones. You can't compartmentalize. You can't say, well, Jesus has, you know, my, my personal life and Jesus has uh, this part of my life and my emotional life and my spiritual life, but my physical life, that's off limits to Jesus. You can't leave Jesus waiting at your bedroom door. You can't leave Jesus outside of your web browser. Wherever you go, Jesus goes with you. Whatever you put in front of your eyes, Jesus is seeing as well. Our bodies are members. We are connected to Christ now. He saved all of us. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No, I can't leave Jesus waiting at the bedroom door. I can't leave him waiting at the brothel. I can't leave him. We are, I'm a member with Christ. My body is a member with Christ. Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul, again, he's balancing out what they were saying. Joined to a prostitute becomes one body. In verse 17, joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He's speaking in parallelisms. He wants to make sure that they understand this crystal clear. And he quotes Genesis 2. To talk about the physical consequences of sexual immorality, he says, when you're, when you're joined with a prostitute, 
He says, you become one flesh. And then he quotes scripture, Genesis 2, 24. It is written, the two shall become one flesh. Now, some people might misunderstand this to think that a, a, a sexual interaction somehow equals marriage. That's not what Paul is saying. But he's saying that it's not that sexual interaction equals marriage, but the sexual interaction is intended only for marriage. That there is a bonding between sexual partners that is inescapable. It's not only inescapable, it's also incompatible with being bonded and one with Christ if that person is not your husband or your wife. We are united with Christ. Sexual sin is incompatible and contradictory to this union. Again, it comes down to dividing the spiritual from the physical. But our members, our body is a, is a member of Christ. Nancy Piercy wrote a, a, a brilliant book called Love Thy Body, which addresses so many issues that we're facing today uh, as a church. It says, some may think sexual hedonism gives sex too much importance, but in reality, it gives sex too little importance. It treats the body as nothing more than a physical organism driven by physical urges. It treats sex as a strictly physical act isolated from a rich inner life of the whole person. Thus, it deprives sex of its depth by detaching it from its meaning as a self-giving between a man and a woman committed to building an entire life together. Loved ones, when we see creation, we see everything has a mate, everything has a pair. You have day with night, you have sun with moon, you have land and sea, you have male and female. They're all intended. It's all part of God's design. And all of that, all that complementarity, all of that oneness, this difference but coming together, all of that points to, to the, the importance, the centrality of marriage and sexual union between one man and one woman in one marriage for one lifetime. And all of that is rooted in creation. And all of that ultimately leads to Christ and his church and to the wedding that we're all invited to in the book of Revelation. It all has a purpose. But when we, when we reduce sex to something that's simply physical or transactional between consenting adults, we miss all of that importance. We sell ourselves short. And we lose sight of the fact that our bodies are united with Christ. So Paul challenges the cultural assumptions about freedom, personal autonomy, about appetites. And then he corrects some of their misunderstandings. They misunderstood salvation. They thought, well, my soul is saved, but I can do whatever I want with my body. No, all of you is saved. And they misunderstood sexuality. They, they didn't understand that there is a bonding that takes place between sexual partners that is very significant. So our bodies will be resurrected by God. Our bodies are united with Christ. And now Paul's going to give the command. Our, he's going to remind us that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he's challenged the assumptions. He's corrected the misunderstandings. And now he's ready to command them on how they ought to live. But the command is rooted in the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us. Notice how the whole Trinity is involved. It says that God raised the Lord. That's referring to the Father, God, raising the Lord Jesus. So the Father is the one who will resurrect us on the last day. And that we are united with Christ. 
and that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The, 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 the triune God cares about our bodies. So here's the command that he gives. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Run away. Loved ones, I, 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 I want to speak, if I may, just to the young men in our church, having at one point been a young man, long, long time ago, but having been someone who even into uh, old age and less hair has uh, experienced the, day, the daily struggle, sexual temptation. And many need to hear this. There are a number of times in Scripture where we are commanded to stand firm and to be strong and to hold your ground and to not shrink back. And men, we love those kind of verses. Be strong, stand firm, don't shrink back, hold your ground. But the command when it comes to sexual immorality is not stand firm, it's run away. The only time that it's cool for a man to run away. The only time where it's manly to flee from a fight is when it comes to sexual immorality. Men, get out of bed. Get out of the room. Give your phone to someone. Give your, run away. Run, flee. By all means, run away. That, that's the command. It couldn't be any more clear. Our, our example here is Joseph in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 39. Joseph had this boss named Potiphar. His wife kept putting the moves on him, kept coming on to him. It says that as she spoke to Joseph day after day, this relentless temptation, he would not listen to her or to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He didn't stand firm. He didn't hold his ground. He didn't try to be strong. He ran away without his clothes on. He would rather be implicated and have people assume that he had committed sexual immorality, which is what happened, than to actually sin against God in that way. He knew the danger, and he ran away. Do we understand the danger? Solomon, if you... If, in, in, in Proverbs chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, if you want to know how, the, the practical implications of how to run away from sexual sin, you read Pro Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. This is what Solomon says in Proverbs 7. I've seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Okay? So Solomon says, let me tell you a story about a stupid person. He says, passing along the street near her corner. That's the reason why he lacked sense. That's the reason why he was simple. And then the allure, the attraction, the presentation all comes in the following verses. And then it says, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. By the time the ox figures out what's going on, it's too late to run away. We're smarter than oxen. Sometimes we smell worse, but we're smarter, men. 
And we have to anticipate where the temptation is coming from and run. Don't be simple. Don't be stupid. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 18, every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I wrestled with this this week. I mean, certainly if someone is engaged in the sin of drunkenness, like they're sinning against their body, they're doing damage to their body. There's a number of other sins that you would sin against your body, but there's something unique. There's something special in the design and the plan of God for Paul to say that when we sin sexually, we sin against our own body. It's because of the bonding that God intended, that, that there is supposed to be a one flesh relationship. It's not merely supposed to be physical. It's supposed to involve a person's emotions and their personality and who they are. In fact, secular science, the same secular science that is saying things like having sex is the same as driving a car, the, 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 the same secular science that is, that is saying, well, we're just mammals, we're just animals, we should just... just Follow your impulses and your desires. Science is, is also discovering that sexual immorality has an effect on our body. For, for, for women, oxytocin is released when, when, when a woman is engaged in sexual activity. Oxytocin is the hormone that is released when a mother starts to bond with her newborn baby, cuddling and nursing. That same hormone that creates the mama bear is released with sexual activity. For men, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's a, a different hormone because men are uh, different. It's called vasopressin. It's this bonding hormone. Now, we might think, I'm not really committed to this person. We're not, we're not thinking about getting married. We're just kind of enjoying being together. I'm not really committed. Listen, you might not be really committed, but your body is. Hormone, your brain chemistry is changing as these hormones are. You, your, your body is affected. It says elsewhere in Proverbs that a man can't take fire into his chest and not burn his clothes. There's, there's a consequence. It changes us. And I would be, I would be remiss if I were to talk about sexual sin and only simply talk about physical action, because Jesus gave us very clear warnings about looking with lustful intent. And studies have also shown, there was a study in Germany in 2014 where they, they took MRIs of over 60 healthy males, brain scans, and there was a correlation between the amount of explicit sexual material or pornography that was viewed, and the higher that that was, the lower the gray matter they found on the MRI. You're sinning against your body. You're sinning against your brain. For men, when, when, we, when we view images like this, dopamine, which is, again, it's a hormone inside of us that helps us understand reward. You know, the, you know the rat in the maze, and they get the little piece of cheese, and so they run the maze faster because they know they get the, that, that, that's dopamine. That's, that, that's how we think about reward. 
sexuality is all supposed to be tied into a reward for being a loving spouse and sacrificing and serving and taking the initiative. All of that gets short-circuited and all of that in your brain gets messed up. So, loved ones, we are sinning against our body when we engage in sexual immorality, when we turn sex into something that is merely a commodity. And he says in verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Father will resurrect us. We're members with Christ. But right now, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives inside of us. Picture in your mind's eye just a large, uh, empty room. And this is, the, this is the temple of the living God. And, and this is your heart. And, and this room is supposed to be devoted to your relationship with God and relating to Him and to worshiping Him. And while you were outside of the temple, you picked up an idol. It was a small little thing. And you carried it with you thinking, this room is a big room. And everything in this room is devoted to God. But I can just bring this one little idol here. I'm just going to put it over here in the corner. And every once in a while, we bring another idol in. And maybe it's, a, maybe it's an unhealthy relationship, or maybe it's a website that we visit on the internet. And it seems so small, it seems so insignificant, but then fast forward a few weeks, a few months, a few years, and you notice that these idols, these statues, they seem like they're these benign, harmless little statues, they've grown. And they're these massive stone structures now. And they're blocking your way from worshiping the true God. The temple is intended for worship. Your heart, your body is supposed to be a temple of the living God. And now these idols are crowding the temple. We know this happened in the Old Testament. This literally happened where people were bringing idols into the temple and God was crowded out. Now some of you are hearing this Message and you're thinking, yes, I have been bringing idols into my heart. I have been sinning sexually. And it started small, but it has grown. And now picture yourself trying to move these idols out. And you get hold of sort of a medium-sized one. And you're able to lift it up and throw it over your shoulder. And walk over to a cliff and throw it down. And you see it smash and be destroyed on the rocks. And there's a sense of satisfaction but there's other idols that are, that are in this temple, that are in your heart, that are in your life, and you've tried to carry it, but you can't lift it. You, you tried to pull it, but it, you tried to push it. You, you knocked it over. You're trying to roll it, and you just can't. It won't budge. Loved ones, you need to remember, that we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says that we individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. Us personally, that's why our bodies matter. But in chapter 3, Paul already established that we, the church, together are the temple. And if you're in a place right now where sexual sin has such a dominant, if you're being dominated by it, 
if it is controlling your life, if you've been trying to push it out of your life, but you can't, chances are it's just that it's too big for you to do on your own. And what you need is for some other brothers and sisters in Christ to say, hey, come here, you take that end, I'll take this end. Or you know what, maybe we should break this thing up into small parts while we're in here and then take it out one by one. It, 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 sometimes there are some sins, that there's some knots that we tie ourselves in that are just too complicated for us to untie. There are some sins in our life that take such a hold on us that we can't do it ourselves. Loved ones, this is my testimony. There were things in my heart and in my life that were too big and I could not move it on my own. But if it were not for my family and for brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside me and say, we're going to destroy this thing together. And so if you've been hearing this message and you're thinking, uh, all you're feeling is just a sense of discouragement and condemnation, I've tried already. I've been trying to put, but maybe because you've been trying on your own. Maybe you need to talk to someone today. They're not going to judge you. Trust me, we all struggle with this stuff. And so that we can get on the path where we start living like we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and nothing is crowding God out in our lives. And so that, as it says here, that we would glorify God with our body. But don't miss what it says at the beginning of verse 20. Before it says glorify God with your body, it says you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Revelation chapter 5 of verse 9, this is the New American Standard Bible says, they sang a new song saying, worthy, just what we were singing this morning, worthy are you to take the book and to break its scrolls for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We've been purchased and we've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Loved ones, understand this. In eternity past, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. In eternity past, Jesus looked at your life in its entirety, looked at all of the good things you did, all of the bad things you did. And he says, I'm going to purchase you. Not just your soul, but your body. And I'm going to purchase you as is. Whatever dysfunction, whatever damage, what, what, what Whatever you would think would cause God to turn away from us, he turned towards us and he purchased us with his blood by suffering and dying on the cross so that all of our sexual sins and all of the guilt that we feel and all of the shame and all God's righteous anger towards us for bypassing his design for sexuality and sinning in our own way, Jesus suffered and died and took the blame for all of that sin and purchased us with his blood. And he bought us as is. The box is in rough shape. And even what's inside the box needs a lot of work. But he loved you. And he purchased you. And it's not too late. And you haven't gone too far. And you can glorify God with your body, as it says in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that he purchased you, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him.
And so that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to offer our bodies. We're going to recognize that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to confess whatever sin needs to be confessed. We're going to commit to the Lord to seek the help that we need. And we're also going to remember that being indwelled with the Holy Spirit is not just a privilege with his presence, but it's also his power to put these things to death in our lives. And so let's bow our heads and pray. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of, of confession and then a song of a renewal and an empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would draw very near to us. God, I pray for those who are feeling especially uh, an amount of condemnation right now from the message and from what your word says and the consequences of sin as people think back about decisions that were made in their past, even decisions that were made this weekend. But Lord, I pray that, you, that we would repent and I pray that we would turn to you and humble ourselves and say thank you for paying the price for us so that we could be forgiven and thank you for coming and dwelling inside of us so that now we have the power in the context of a loving community to put these sins to death. And so Lord, we pray that you would draw very near to us right now, Lord, that the words of these songs would be our prayer, would come from our very heart that we would glorify you with our body because we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name.